Hey, beautiful humans. It's time to stop sacrificing for everyone else and put you first. Are you feeling tired, stuck, or disconnected? Or maybe you're just looking to be the best version of you. I'm Mary Wong. And I'm Dr. Tanya Wild, and this is Embrace, Embrace You First, a podcast to help you thrive and not just survive. We are busy moms, successful entrepreneurs, and doctors in the field of natural medicine with over 40 years combined clinical experience. You're going to learn from our professional expertise and our juicy secrets that have helped thousands of men and women just like you. We are going to teach you practical and doable strategies on health, relationships, and career. So sit back, relax, and get ready to embrace you right now. Today, we are here with Luis Benitez, and we are so freaking super excited because he is the only person on this planet, I believe, who has actually summited Mount Everest six times. And not only that, he has done some of the world's most like imposing peaks, which includes the seven summits and seven continents multiple times. So welcome. Thank you for being here with us. Oh, Mary Tanya, thank you for having me. Um, and actually, um, two kudos to you straight out of the gate. First of all, you pronounced my name correctly. So congratulations. <laughs> Very good. And then the second, the second point of clarification is, believe it or not, there are people that have climbed Everest 14 times, 20 times between the Sherpas what? and the Westerners and Europeans. There's this little fraternity of people around the world that are sort of the, the six-timer club, the eight-timer club, mostly guides and Sherpas. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty small pretty small group of people, but uh, um, I, am, I am a tiny, tiny bug, nevertheless, compared to some of those other folks. Wow. Okay. Well, your tiny bug is a giant, like, <laughs> universal bug to us because, uh, yes. you know, um, maybe you know how many people actually have summited Mount Everest. Do you, do you um, know? Yeah, I think, I think it's a little bit um, around 4,000 people now, 3,500 people, 4,000 people. That's also counting um, the Sherpa community, which are which is the indigenous tribe um, in Nepal that lives at the base of Mount Everest. And most expeditions have Sherpa support um, to be able to climb the mountain because it's a massive physical and logistical undertaking. And, and most totally. people able to do it without their help so that includes um the sherpa community as well wow so i mean really think about the sheer number right like over three thousand, and how many billions of people are on on earth right now like that's, well, that's not many how many people have tried dating back to the mm. 50s that's that's where the number gets gets pretty interesting so you've got these days i think the ratio is that you've got a 50 50 shot of making it if you go um, and you've got a 20 to 30% shot of getting killed if you go. So, um, you know, the numbers statistically, um, while things get safer, equipment gets better, weather forecasting gets better over the years, um, it's still the biggest mountain on the planet. And you're, you're yeah. still taking a risk by, by going and, and attempting the climb. Well, it's when insane. Was, and when we talked to uh, somebody that you helped climb, uh, Len Stanmore, who we interviewed in another episode, and who's talking about how many days it takes to climb the mountain. I just had no idea. You know, I it just it was. Yeah. How many days is it? Oh, Len is one of my favorite people. I can't wait to hear his episode. Um, he will 
forever be one of my favorite humans. Um, so Everest is about a three-month expedition door-to-door from the time you close the door at home to the time you come back. And the reason why is just the acclimatization process. You can't, if I, if I plucked you, Tanya, out of your studio and dropped you on the summit of Mount Everest, you'd be unconscious in like five minutes and dead in 10 minutes just due to the change in elevation. So you've got to go up and down, up and down, up and down, um, to get your body used to the elevation um, before you even attempt the summit. So that three months is a lot of up and down, a lot of waiting for weather. There's a very good chance you'll get sick at some point with, um, you know, gastrointestinal stuff or respiratory stuff. So you got to recover from that. Um, There are a couple of rest cycles where you go down Valley. I tell people all the time, Everest is a multi-million dollar city that rises and falls every year at the base of the mountain. So it's a, um, it's a, it's a massive undertaking and you really do, you bring the kitchen sink and lens trip, um, you know, for better or for worse, um, really shifted some of the paradigms for, for how you can perceive rest cycles or, or how you perceive certain ways of mountaineering. And Len has had, I, I, which is why I can't wait to hear his episode has had such a unique journey in his mountaineering, uh, experience that, uh, um, oh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun yeah, to he, listen to. He helped us really, like, <laughs> did, he was very detailed. I felt like I was there. And I just, all I can think about is the tent. <laughs> like the tent. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us but that's a different expedition. That. Uh, well, I mean, depending on. Oh, okay. Well, so I'll, I'll give you one good lens story. My favorite lens story. Um, that's how he got started um, with hearing. Um, I'm sure his ears are burning right now, and I'm going to hear about this when it airs, I'm sure. Um, he and his wife, Liz, who are lovely people, um, Len brought Liz on an expedition to Kilimanjaro, even. They both summited um, to the highest mountain in Africa together um, with me. So the mountaineering's in the family, right? Um, but when Len gets started with something, he's such a, um, a humble guy. You know, he'll read a book or read a magazine article and say, gosh, that sounds like fun. I think I'm going to go try that. And in the context of mountaineering, for most mountains, you have to have a little bit of a resume before a reputable guide service will take you. So you can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. I'm going to write a check and away I go. The the guiding industry has evolved to the point where you really have to um, have climbed other things, um, have have a progressive resume as you do more and more technical and more remote climbs. Len somehow, and he loves to tell this part of the story, slipped through our network of screening and ended up on an expedition to Mount Vinson, the highest mountain in Antarctica, which is the most remote, the harshest climate on the planet. Um, and I'll never forget in a tiny little hotel room um, in, in uh, Punta Arenas in Chile, when we were just checking on everybody's gear, getting ready to fly to the ice. I'm talking to people about their mountaineering experience and I walk into Len's room and Len's pulling tags off of gear that his wife Liz had just purchased for him a week before the climb. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never worn these before. I'm not sure how these are going to work. And I remember going back to my room and going, Oh, Oh, I called the office. I remember calling the office saying, how did this guy get through the screening process He's pulling tags off of gear. He's never he's never done anything at this level. Yeah. And, you know, say what you want about Len Stanmore, but his staunch Canadian mindset and his just level-headedness, um, one of the worst storms I've ever seen in all my years working in Antarctica as part of my annual 
cycle, um, we got into a really bad storm at high camp. So you're at elevation, um, you're dug in, and there's nothing for weather to, nothing to stop weather because the weather comes off the ocean, crosses the Ross ice shelf and runs into the mountain. So you're, you're experiencing weather, you know, 40 to 80 degrees below zero, um, you know, high, high winds. And I just remember poking my head in the tent and there's Len shoved in between uh, two, uh, two, pe- two Frenchmen, um, just smile on his face, asking me when dinner is and uh, how cold it's out there. <laughs> Um, and I knew that, you know, come what may, Len was going to be okay. Right. And, and his, that mindset is how he approaches everything. He's He's got this, you know what, if I can keep putting one foot in front of the other, it's going to be okay kind of a mindset. And we summited and that began his seven summits journey, which eventually took us to Everest. Wow. That was his first experience, that near-death experience. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Okay. And then, so for the people that are just uh, tuning in for the first time, go back and listen to uh, Len's version of this. This is episode number 21, but he tells it differently. And Oh, yeah, 21 and 22. Thank you. Sorry, Len. I'll just apologize in advance. There you go. No, it's so cool. And do you know how old he is? And do you know how old he was when he did that track? Um, you know, I, I, Len's kind of timeless to me. So I want to say he was in his 60s when he did that. Um, yeah. Or in his late 50s, early 60s. Yes, exactly. So and the whole point is like, you know, people can stop themselves in, law, in their lives. And uh, what we want to exude to people is like, you know what? Whatever your mindset, we can come through it. And we can actually shift because, you know, the only constant is change. And so you, we might as well change with life, right? And be more open. And so you're just telling us about Len being that. But now let's talk about you. Like, yeah. how the heck did you get started? And why did you become a guide? And tell us your story, please. Well, you, you know, I, I, the, the thing I'll, I'll wrap up with the Len stories because um, <laughs> I've made him blush enough. I'm sure he's so humble and quiet. He's going to. I'm going to suffer for this, I'm sure, somehow, some way. <laughs> um, you know, your comment about changing your mindset, you know, one of the things that I've always appreciated about Len is it's less about taking no for an answer, but it's more about, well, if this path doesn't work, how about that path? And if that path doesn't work, why don't we try this path? So being open to options, um, at least in the context of high altitude mountaineering, you have to have this mindset and this approach that anything is possible, there's not just one way to get things done, um, but you have to be willing to put your one foot in front of the other. You know, Len didn't hop off the couch and decide to go to Antarctica. Um, Len was very focused on his nutrition, his personal health, um, and, and being as healthy as he could possibly be before he went. Um, and in the context of your question about me, my journey was very different. When I got started with mountaineering, um, you know, it came through a kind of a, a unique spin. I, I was born with, with really debilitating asthma and allergies. Couldn't really go outside very much when I was a kid. The doctors told my mother and father, you know, your son's going to be the boy in the bubble. He's never going to be able to go outside much. Um, and they just didn't accept that path. They, they really thought there was another way to get my lungs strong. Um, started looking around for different doctors, found um, a Western doctor that said, well, do you know anybody that lives at altitude was the first question because the air is cleaner and thinner and will exercise his lungs. 
um, and have them swim in an indoor pool because the chlorine keeps the allergen content down. And literally, like most kids would do, have him hold his breath underwater and try to swim and walk, do laps underneath the pool, um, and that'll expand his lung capacity. So this is where I got lucky. My father is from Ecuador, um, and so we started spending summers with, uh, with my Ecuadorian wow. family in the mountains, and I became a fish. I, I literally started, you know, the little Debbie swim team when I was uh, seven, um, started with them, and just, you know, I was the kid that eventually as I slowly started to outgrow my asthma um, could hold my breath and just do laps underwater. Like it, it was nothing, um, which, you know, still to this day um, it's, it's interesting to now watch a lot of exercise physiologists start to suggest pool work where you're actually, you've got weights on the bottom of the pool and you're, you're kind of running and walking underwater to expand your lung capacity, understand your lactic acid threshold. Um, I kind of chuckle because for me, that that's kind of the way I grew up and, and altitude very much is about your breath and it's about your, your capacity to endure. And for some reason, as the years went on and I got more interested in mountaineering in Ecuador, um, as I started working down in Ecuador, kind of like in most countries, there are soccer clubs and volleyball clubs and all these historical, you know, baseball, basketball clubs. In Ecuador, there are mountaineering clubs and they date back to the beginning of time. And so whatever club you join is very much a part of your identity. And and I remember as an apprentice guide, you know, the higher you go, the harder you struggle, the harder it is to breathe, the harder it is to catch your breath. But the breathing exercises you do as a mountaineer, the breathing exercises I was doing since I was five. And so as other people started to struggle, I sort of dropped into this really interesting place of comfort um, where I I wasn't scared of it. Um, I knew how to, how to deal with it. And it was, it was surreal for me to watch people around me um, get really uncomfortable and nervous because they couldn't catch their breath. And for me, it was a, a thing that I had been living with my entire life. So um, straight out of the great, having a comfort level with it and something just clicked inside my head. I knew that this was going to be a part of my life for the rest of my life. I didn't know how, I didn't know where, I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I knew I had to be a part of that culture um, because it, it just, it, it brought me everything. So that's what made you become a guide? Uh, well, I guess you would have to experience the mountaineering itself first, right? Or did you just go straight into being a guide? Yeah, no. When you become a guide, you kind of, you know, like most apprenticeship-based careers outside of a university setting, um, you're, you're the lowest person on the totem pole and you've got to put in your dues. Um, so if anybody, you know, you're the turnaround kid. So if anybody didn't want to summit, you got sent back with Luis. If anybody was feeling bad that morning, you got sent back with Luis. If anybody woke up one day, decided they saw something in a magazine, wanted to go climb this mountain, went to MEC, bought a bunch of equipment, bought the plane ticket, flew there, got to the base of the mountain, started out, and an hour into the climb, decided they wanted to go home. Luis was the one that had to turn him around. So, you know, it, it begs the question of how bad do you want to do this work? Because it's not glamorous in the beginning. You're, you're, you have to slowly work your way up the totem pole. But the thing that really um, shifted it for me, one, I was very interested in the educational aspect of time in the outdoors. So I started working with an organization called Outward Bound, which takes um, adolescents into the mountains um, to not only teach them the technical skills, but also how to be an effective leader, effective communication skills. So the educational aspect was really interesting to me. And I tried to carry that over into my burgeoning guiding career. 
And I think the thing that really shifted for me is when I started approaching guiding companies for an actual quote unquote job, um, you know, I started mountaineering when I was 13, 14 years old, um, started high altitude mountaineering. So while most 20 something year olds um, were just kind of getting started with their resumes, I had been above 20,000 feet um, multiple times in Ecuador um, by the time I was, I was 19, 20 years old. Um, so it, it sort of changed the game in the context of, of how I was showing up and I spoke Spanish. So while most apprentice guides have to put in their dues um, for years and years and years, um, I managed to sort of skip, skip some of that for better or for worse. Um, when I really decided that guiding, you know, was going to be my career and make no mistake about it. Um, my parents were not thrilled. This was my choice. (laughs) This is something that, you know, I'm the firstborn son of the firstborn son of a Latino Italian family. Um, there, there's a lot of expectation that comes with that. (laughs) And, uh, when I said uh, law school wasn't in my future, that, uh, I was going to go be a mountain guide and I was going to move to Switzerland to actually study, um, guiding and to become a full, fully certified guide. It was like, I would have said I was, moving into a van down by the river, um, never to be seen again. It's so, you know, this question of how to inspired you to do it. I, 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 I turned around on them and I said, well, this is kind of your fault, but um, <laughs> in the context of moving forward, you know, it, for me, um, you know, when, when you feel that calling or you have a passion like that, I think it's something that you, you have to listen to your internal instinct because it, it, it's sometimes wrong, oftentimes right. And, and for me, um, I just, I felt like I owed this community a lot. It's where I found my health, both mentally and physically. Um, it had given me so much in the context of, of community. Um, and, and I really love the work. And when you love what you do, it, it's, it's kind of difficult to do anything else. With Sorry, such passion. Yeah. With, I mean, with such passion, I mean, you have developed a career that is not nothing to shirk about at, at all. I mean, you've grown the outdoor um, recreational industry in Colorado, like by heaps and bounds, like it's incredible. So it's like, so for you listening out there, it's like whatever passion you want to follow, you can be successful and you are a shining example of that. Maybe you want to share some of that with us. Sure. You know, I, mean, I you know, I, it, the interesting thing is that as humans, I think we, you have to pay attention to your own evolution. I don't think, I think the days, first of all, of having a career for 40 or 50 years um, and that being all that you do is long gone. Um, And I also think at least as a mountain guide, you have to look at it through the lens of being an Olympic athlete. There's only so long that your body's going to be able to do some of these things at a very high level over and over and over again, not necessarily as a participant, but as someone responsible for other people. Um, You have to keep in mind that as a guide, when other people tuck in and go to bed, some of your work is just beginning in the context of taking care of the group, understanding logistics, understanding where you are, where you're going, the hazards. Um, So, you know, staying at that level mentally and physically, you know, requires a lot. And sadly, most guides don't know when to give up the ghost and and try to find something else. And for me, the unique spin was always, um, there's a, there's a British magazine that deals a lot with global policy and foreign policy called the economist. 
And when you're mountaineering, the general rule of thumb is you'll take a really seedy dime store novel, you'll rip it into three three parts, you'll share it with your friends, and you'll read that part of the book, and then you'll switch parts of the book. So there's always somebody grumpy because they're starting the book at the end of the book, and they don't know how the beginning started. So that's usually your entertainment material on the mountain. People would always make fun of me because I would take three or four issues, back issues of The Economist, and put them in a, in a plastic bag, and that was my evening reading. Like, why would you want to read about global policy, you know, as opposed to just relaxing and reading a romance novel or something just fun and to take you out of your, out of your mindset? And, and I always enjoyed um, whatever country we were working in going a couple of days early because you have to really set up with the government, the engagement with your local staff, your permitting, you know, there are labor rights and labor issues. Um, you know, the, the, the component of how you engage in a country in a respectful way was always a part of the job. And bit by bit, that slowly intrigued me to the question of how do you look at the outdoor industry as not just a place to do fun stuff, but as a global economy? an actual place where policy happens for climate, um, clean air, clean water, um, public lands. Um, policy also happens for labor rights because a lot of times you're dealing with some of the poorest people um, in rural areas of, of most countries. And, and how do you encourage and advance some of those things? So bit by bit, the political side of our economy and our industry started to intrigue me more and more. And, and slowly but surely, um, got involved with it to the point where um, it, it became the natural next step in my in my career progression. So, to your point, ended up working to, to for the state of Colorado in the United States as a director for the outdoor industry office, um, where you know we took the industry from you know you know twenty eight billion dollars in consumer spending to over sixty billion in consumer spending. Um, you know, and in the United States at least, the outdoor industry represents about eight hundred billion in consumer spending, over seven million American jobs when you think of all the guides, tourism components, um, you know, everybody that works on public lands. That in the United States, that's bigger than the auto industry and the pharmaceutical industry combined. But when you think of the political voice and power for public health, education, workforce development, conservation and stewardship, um, and, and also economic development, you know, that was something that really intrigued me. So that's definitely become a part of my professional path and journey to understand how to evolve our industry um, being on par with others. Because um, when you think of the auto industry and the outdoor industry, you don't think of them a lot on this, at the same table politically. But the reality is we have just as much strength and power and we deal with things um, like everything that I mentioned, um, which in turn makes not only an economy stronger, but from a public health component, the, the people that live in that community stronger. Wow, it's so powerful. And I, I love how you transform your way of thinking and your purpose um, as you have progressed, right? And so are you still guiding now or have you, are you, oh, you are, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think people always ask me, are you going to go back to Everest? And for me, it's, as I told you, an Everest expedition is three months. So if you add up, I've been there seven times. Um, you know, that's, that's a couple of years of my life on one mountain mm. in one valley. And so it, it's a part of me. It becomes a part of you personally, as, as much as it does professionally. Um, of course, I would go back. I still guide for uh, charities and nonprofits that I serve 
um, on the board with. And again, having family in Ecuador and having friends that own guiding services, it's very easy to call and say, hey, I'm coming down to visit family in a couple months. Um, give me a three-day trip to fill in the blank on the mountain. And, uh, you know, I, and I try to keep myself sharp and, and stay, stay in the game. Um, is it my primary focus? Not necessarily, but it'll always be a part of my life. Once a guide, always a guide. I was just going to say, you have this saying about like challenge, choice, change. Can you tell us about what that means and how it's guided you? And in, in Yeah, life? you know, the, the, the interesting thing from a human perspective, Tanya, is, you know, I say all the time, I think what you're referencing is that I, I try to tell people, and you probably heard this from Len, mm-hmm. you know, if you really challenge yourself, you can change your world. Right. And, and, and what that means is, you know, I've seen a lot of people, and I'll use Everest as an example, think they're ready, go on an expedition, fail, and then come back and say, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't ready. Um, I've got to change certain things in my life to be able to go do that. And then they go home and they have this greater appreciation for what they have after living on a hunk of ice, rock, and snow for three months. And so the, I think we have challenges every single day, especially what we're in the middle of right now, that we just see as suffering, we don't see a lesson opportunity or, or an opportunity for, for personal growth or development in it. Um, we just see it as suffering. And I think mountaineers, I joke with all my friends through the pandemic all the time. We're the best people. We're in the best shape um, for this because, you know, for the guys, you grow a beard, you hunker down, you eat good food and, yeah. and, and you move when you can move. You're probably like, this is nothing. <laughs> like, we can weather prevents this. you from getting out of the tent. You yeah. stay in the tent and you, and you yeah. just read your book. Um, and so I think you, you have this mindset of, of uh, understanding, you know, truly what's a challenge and what's just an obstacle in your way. And, and so I think when you, when you start to differentiate those things, you really can change your world. So the, I'll wrap this story with, you know, my first time on Everest, I was 28 years old. I had never been to the Himalayas before, and I had gotten an invite to be one of the guides um, on Eric Weinmayer's team, the only blind person to ever climb Everest. Now, at the time, you'd think, why the heck would a blind person climb Everest, number one? Number two, why would he take a 28-year-old that's never been to the Himalayas before? Well, the reality is no guide with a resume would touch that expedition with a 10-foot pole because they, would worry they were worried they were going to get him killed, which would destroy their career. So from a risk perspective, nobody wanted to touch it. And so his team, 90% of us had never been to the Himalayas before. Had, had never been on Everest before, but being successful on that trip, and he's still the only blind person to have ever summited Everest, um, it completely shifted my understanding of what was possible. Um, and it's not about being heroic. It was just about having a plan, a strategy, implementing that strategy day by day. It, it's, that's how you eat the elephant um, and getting it done. There was no drama on our trip. Not even so much as, uh, you know, I think the, the worst physical ailment anybody got was um, an upset stomach every once in a while, a blister and a little bit of sunburn, no frostbite, no death, no drama. Um, wow. and, and I understand how to, how to get to a place like that. You have to understand that those challenges need to be perceived for what they are. They're, they're an opportunity to devise a different kind of a strategy to make it work. Um, so, you know, going from that experience and then going back into the international guiding community, it really, it changed my trajectory forever. Wow. That's amazing. And, you know, when you talk about 
challenge. I don't think some people can appreciate the true challenge that it is that you can potentially face when you try to summit Everest, right? Because um, do you know how many people not just not climb it, but actually lost their lives to it? Yeah, I mean, a significant portion every year um, end up, um, you know, and I think end up getting killed. And, and I think that the, you know, there'll always be the allure of wanting to climb Everest. Um, there are definitely harder mountains on the planet, without a doubt. Um, but the, the pull for Everest will always be there because it's the biggest. And, and, and I think you, you know, I, I talk to a lot of folks that have never been there before about the fact that um, when you're preparing for something like that, you are a climber first and you're everything else second. It's the most selfish thing you can do in your entire life if you really want to be focused. So if you're, you know, if you're married, you have a partner, a family, business, whatever it is, all those things have to come second because it requires you to mentally burn the bridge behind you when you go to be focused enough to stay safe and to stay effective. And a lot of people, when they've never done something like that before, you can't conceptualize having that kind of commitment because what do you mean? I'm going to tell my partner that they're number two for this training phase and the expedition. Like, that's awful. Why would you ever want to say that? But the reality is, I think it's self-care is something that, that we oftentimes shove to the last thing on the list. And when I'm talking to people about Everest, that level of focus and dedication to the to what you're what's in front of you that level of self-care will keep you from getting killed because you'll be at your highest game when you're there and it's a moment in life now i don't want i'm not encouraging you to be selfish the entire time just for this period to prep for this goal for this thing um people go they have problems they'll call and say oh Luis, now i understand what you were talking about they'll go back and they'll be successful and you know, to a certain extent, Len and the Canadian team that, that we went with um, was like that. Um, they, they didn't make it their first try. Um, and, and they had to go back. They had to go reassess what they did right, what they did wrong, um, and, and come back and, and try again. And, and, and to watch that progress um, and that level of dedication, um, you know, there, there's no faking it on a big mountain. If, if you're driven by ego or if you're driven by an agenda, um, that mountain will send you home broken mm. as most mountains do. You, you can't, you can't fake your way up a big hill. It's interesting That's how awesome. you say it's selfish on the one hand, but I, I kind of, I, then you alluded to the fact that it's selfless in a way you're taking care of yourself. So you survive and it kind of translates to daily life, right? We do have to take care of ourselves in order to show up the best person that we can. And I can imagine being so transforming for the people who do it. So it must be really amazing for you to see that transformation. You know, and I, Tanya, the thing that I'll share with you, especially during the pandemic and right now, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I talked to a lot of friends that are in the professional space, um, you know, who love being part of running clubs or they went to spin class or they go to Pilates, but I, there's a sense of loss. Like I can't go to my spin class because that's the only place that I, you know, that was my tribe. That's a place where I got exercise. And I I had, I I usually end up laughing. Like, are you kidding me? Put on some shoes, open the door, go outside and walk around your block. (laughs) 
Um, and if it's raining, guess what? That's okay. Get a little wet and uncomfortable. Put a raincoat on. That, don't, don't wear a raincoat. Walk around in the rain. F- feel what it feels like to be cold. Forget your gloves. Wear a too light jacket, which is going to make you quicken your step and, and walk around a little bit. I think the thing that we forget the most about is that even basic movement can change your, your, your brain physiology. 15 minutes a day completely shifts the way you look at life. It, it, I mean, it's, it's fact-based, it's science, it releases chemical compounds in your brain that, that completely evolve your thinking. And, and so when I talk to people, especially through, through the pandemic, I could easily hide in the basement, eat chocolate ice cream um, until I'm 400 pounds and, and lament, you know, the loss. Well, what I really see it as is an opportunity to explore my own backyard. And, you know, I've knocked on neighbors' doors that I've never met before and stood back, you know, <laughs> like, hi, I, I know you it. don't know me, but I live around the corner. I'm bored. Oh. I want somebody new to look at and talk to. <laughs> um, and, you know, look at me. You can see the way I look. Sometimes, you know, I've done this to a couple of neighbors. They're like, ah, are you selling something? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That, that beard is scary. I'm like, no, I'm just, I, I want to do something different and, and you're different. So hi, how are you? Um, and, and that's what I mean when I mean, when I say challenge yourself, that's a challenge to some people that would scare the hell out of some people, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's a challenge. Right. And so you have to look at challenge where you find it. And, and especially at this moment in time, um, those opportunities are everywhere right now. Don't just sit in your basement mm-hmm. and eat ice cream. You're stepping out of your box you. and you're changing your perception, right? You have to. So um, I'm just aware of their time and we want to keep it into small segments. So we want to do a part two for this because there's just so much juiciness that is going on here. So why don't we just close off this episode right now? And But before we do so, just tell us what fills your cup today. Oh, you know, what fills my cup today, and this is going to sound so simple. Um, I, being a mountain guide, you're always into hot drinks. You're into a cup of tea or you're into a cup of coffee every morning. There's this ritual to it. And what fills my cup um, these days, I've become, uh, some would say a coffee snob. I'll take that. That's fine. You know, hand grinder, <laughs> hand pour, you know, the drip. I've, I've spent way more money than I should have on all this accoutrement to, to make a cup of coffee. What fills my cup this morning is actually what's in this cup that you see on the screen. Um, some lovely coffee from Jamaica. So that's what fills my cup. <laughs> <laughs> I love how Thank you took you. it and That's made awesome. it literal. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to continue this podcast. So please go to Apple podcast, like it, comment, give us a five star and then do a screenshot and DM us on embrace you first on our Instagram account. And we are going to pick a lucky winner. So you can have 30 minutes of um, free consultation with either Dr. Tanya wild or myself at the end of the month so thanks for joining we'll see you next time as we continue this freaking awesome conversation thank you for joining us click subscribe like and share please comment and suggest topics you want us to cover until next time ask yourself how you're going to embrace you first today for more podcasts check out embraceyoufirst.com and follow us on instagram facebook and youtube